Amen. Amen is English. Amen is Spanish. We're going to be in the book of Ezekiel. It's the same. I can speak Spanish all day long. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right, Ezekiel 28. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 19. And the title of the message is The Origin and Results of Pride. And um, let's begin. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. The Bible says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. That's Ezekiel talking. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And what we're going to find out is that it's describing the king of Tyre, but it's also a type of a description of the enemy, the enemy of our souls. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed garden, guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more. Now, again, it's kind of playing off a real king, a real king of Tar, but also included in this is a description of what, who we know as the enemy, the adversary. Uh, you know, we don't like to spend too much time talking about the enemy, but we don't want to be ignorant about the fact that there is an enemy as well. Um, and so every so often we're going to be looking at, uh, just to make us aware again that we are in a battle, we're not battling for victory, we're battling from victory. Um, but the enemy's still out trying to do what he does. And so let's kind of let's examine. The Bible says, be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves, right? Be ignorant of the enemy's devices. And so be not ignorant of his devices. And so we, wanna, we want to kind of take a little bit of time tonight and just without focusing too much on... Uh, let me say it this way. God is bigger than the enemy. If you focus too much on the enemy, you will make the enemy bigger than God is in your life. He will never be bigger than God, but in your life, if you're not careful, he can become bigger than God. And we don't want that to happen either. Always we want the focus to be on God. He is good. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere present. And he is for you, not against you. Amen? So the key verse we want to look at in this text is verse 18. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Now, as a way of introduction, a good God created all things good. 
Now, you, a lot of people say, how do you know that? Well, actually, we know it because God revealed it to us. No one was there. Adam was there. You say, well, Adam was there after everything had been created for him and prepared for him. So how do we know what God did? Because God revealed it to Moses. Moses wrote it down in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote the record for us. Genesis actually describes the creation of God. God revealed to us that he's a good God and he created everything good. In Genesis 1.31 through 2.3, it says, God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. By the way, if you go ever do a, a, a little study on the word evening and morning, evening really derives from a Hebrew word that means chaos. And morning derives from a word that means order. So God is a God who brings order out of chaos. In fact, that's what it says in Genesis 1 and 1. In the, uh, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void or chaotic. And the Spirit of God hovered over that chaotic mess. And the Lord began to say, let there be, and he spoke the word of God. Okay, so on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now the question becomes, if God created everything good, how then do we live in such a world as the one we're in that from every aspect appears to be not so good? Where then did greed, corruption, strife, perversion, slander, pride come from? And really, as Christians, we might have that question, but there's a lot of non-Christians that actually use that as a reason to not believe in a good God. If God is the creator of everything, then he must have created evil. He must have created, uh, uh, you know, uh, all these things that we battle with. No, actually, that's not true. God created everything good. Now, you say, well, where does evil come from? Well, that's another, <laughs> that's actually another uh, message, but I'll give you a little, it really helped me a lot. Evil is really the absence of something, right? Where there is no light, there is darkness. Where there is no love, there is hate. So evil is actually the absence of what God designed us to be. And that darkness actually is embodied in a serpent, in a deceiver, and he propagates that anti-goodness that God created everything to be, all right? So God didn't create evil, he created free will, and in our ability to have free will, it gave us the opportunity to not live, to live up to what God created us to be. And in that uh, lack, in that void, is where darkness and evil um, actually came into being. Does that make sense to you? All right? So, again, we could do a whole teaching on it. We're not going to do that, but I just wanted to help you with that. So where then did grief, corruption, strife, perversion come from, slander, or whatever else you want to name? Did it come from God? Obviously, the answer is no, but to answer that question, we do have to go back to the beginning when everything that was good in this world began to turn. Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And by the way, he didn't create them male. He created them male and female, right? That's important 
in our world today that we understand that women are not less than men. Amen? So, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what did God do? God gave a commandment, but he gave man and woman the ability to choose. They could choose to obey, or they could choose not to obey. Unfortunately, we find there was also someone else in that garden seeking to urge them to choose to disobey God instead of to obey God. And that's what brings us to our first point, the adversary revealed. Genesis 3 and 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So the real culprit is uh, this being that appeared to Adam and Eve as a serpent. And we're talking about the real culprit, the real culprit of what? Where did all this stuff come from? So is this serpent further revealed to us in Scripture? Because we only have a glimpse of him in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through the next couple of verses. But uh, is he revealed to us more in Scripture? Actually, just a few Scriptures. We don't pull a lot of them. But to go to the New Testament in Matthew 4, 1, the Bible says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In 1 Peter 5 and 8, uh, uh, Peter is warning the churches, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil. And by the way, doesn't mean he's your friend. How does the Bible describe him? Your adversary, the tempter, right? He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus actually said in John 10 and 10, he said, the thief comes to, so what did he call him? A thief. He doesn't add anything to your life. He takes stuff from your life. And what does he come to take? He come but to steal, kill, and destroy. He will promise you the world, but he'll take it right back from you and everything else you have. Right? Like a politician. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, sorry. Anyway. So we have the adversary, part uh, one. Number two, we have the adversary's origins. Isaiah 28, 18. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profane your sanctuaries, as, as we said before. That's our key text. That word that is translated as trading, because when I first read that, and I've read this many times, you think, wow, were they, were they importing, exporting goods? Were the angels, did they have shops, you know? Maybe they had a gun shop, you know, and, and they were trading or doing whatever. Is that what it means? Well, uh, it couldn't mean that, but at, at, let's go back and see a little bit more. It's actually the word uh, uh, is translated in the King James Version as traffic. It's a Hebrew root word whose primary meaning is to go to and fro, to go backwards and forwards. The word is associated with the practice of trade because a trader is someone who goes to and fro, fetching his wares and selling them at various markets. However, its original meaning is not confined to trade. Leviticus 19 uses a word from the exact same root. In Leviticus 19 and 16, it says, You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. So the root concept is going about as a talebearer or spreading slander. Then out of going about, develop the problems that happen when a person does just that. 
One of them is trade, but the one that this passage refers to, which is primary, is slander, carrying around tales or spreading untrue reports. Another example is in Proverbs 11:13, which says, "A talebearer." This is New King James, reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. So that is the basic meaning of the word. Returning to Ezekiel 28:16, we read, "By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within." This could mean to us that by going about as a slander and a talebearer, spreading false reports. Lucifer promoted rebellion. Now, obviously, we kind of already knew that going into it, right? But this is what happened. And because of his rebellion, he was cast out from the presence of God. And I believe that this is the correct picture that the Bible is trying to give us. Perhaps Lucifer said something like this to the other angels in a very cynical tone of voice. I want you angels to understand that the Lord does not really appreciate you. You have capabilities. You're capable of more that is being given to you. Now, if you were to follow me, I would see that your full potential was developed. What would you think about setting up our own kingdom? Why should we serve this God? I believe I can make as good a God as the God we serve. The amazing fact is that apparently, even in the full light of heaven's glory, in a perfect universe that had never been marred by sin, these tactics somehow succeeded. If Satan's tactics work in heaven where sin had never been heard of, let alone perpetrated, and where God was revealed in his glory and beauty, how much more effectively will Satan's tactics work on the earth? They have proven to work more effectively for thousands of years. We saw that in the Garden of Eden where everything was created good, and yet somehow this one being was able to influence, tempt, Eve and Adam to disobey God's word. So we need to understand the way Satan operates because he still operates in the same way he did when he was dismissed from heaven. Revelation 12 and 4 tells us that Lucifer's pride sparked a rebellion in which one-third of the angels turned against their creator God and followed Satan instead. Revelations 12, 3 through 4. And another side appeared, a sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, can I just stop here and just say something? The devil is not God's co-equal. He's a created being. Like a cockroach, God could just step on him in an instant and deal with him. Why does he not do that? Why does he not just get rid of him? It's never been a question of power. It's never been a question of whether God can. Um, why God chose to do things this way, I don't know. But one of the things that we do know is with the adversary prowling around, we have the opportunity to exercise the authority and the power that God has given to us. But in order to do that, we've got to come to a place where we understand the goodness and the power of the God that we serve and the reality of the devil and his desire to pull us away from the things of God. In some way, it does give us, like the troops 
in a military who do training, who do, uh, uh, um, I'm trying to figure out, I don't know the military terms. They go and they fight uh, preparatory battles. Um, in some sense, it gives us that opportunity so that we can become all that God's called us to be. Well, you say, well, that's not fair because some people don't do so good. That's true. Some people don't do so good. But the reality of the fact is that that doesn't give us the freedom to also give and use the opportunity that God has given us to do all that he's called us to do and to exercise the authority and the dominion that he's given to us. We've got to learn how to trust God. And we're not learning how to trust God in a vacuum. We have to learn how to trust God on a battlefield. And God wants us on that battlefield not to lose but to win. But in order to win... We've got to learn how to focus on God. We've got to learn how to let God be uh, the center of our attention in the middle of a battle. And we've got to learn how to let God lead us and guide us into uh, our personal victories that flow out of the victory that he had at the cross of Calvary. So I'm not really prepared to give you an answer right now today as to why God allowed the enemy to run around to and fro. But I can tell you that he's a defeated foe. He will lie to you and tell you that he's not, but he is. He will lie to you and tell you that he's God's equal, but he's not. All you got to do is look through the pages of the Bible and realize that all God needed was one angel to kill 186,000 men. And an angel isn't God, right? <laughs> all God needed was Gideon, but God chose to use Gideon and 300 to rout an army. All God needed was one man named Moses to lift up a staff and God could part the seas. It's not a question of power. God's just looking for someone that will partner with him, believe him, and trust him, and let him use them to bring his power to bear in this world against the enemy that wants to thwart, kill, steal, and destroy. Well, how does it look like today? Sickness, disease, affirmity, and affliction, rebellion, slander, corruption, greed. What's going on in the world? I mean, we can look at it on a regular basis in the church, division, bitterness, uh, uh, gossip, all these kind of things. But even in the world, what's happening in our government, what's happening in the world, we see corruption, we see greed, we see slander. It's becoming more exposed. It's becoming more prevalent to us. And we say, oh, my gosh, things are bad. Well, the reason things are bad is because we forgot that we're God's instruments and God's power dwells within us and he didn't call us to get out of the world he called us to go into the world and where there are no Christians there is a vacuum where darkness has the ability to be able to do what it wants to do how do you deal with darkness you bring in the light if there are no Christians in government there is no light and then we complain oh it's getting so bad why is it getting so bad? Everything looks good in the church. Well, because all the light is in the church. But the light's not supposed to be in the church. The light of the church is supposed to go out into the world. It's my contention that God really wants to show himself victorious in this world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Somehow we, we, we read that, we think another way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on, in heaven, in the millennium. No. Now, through his people, arise, shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon 
you, right? So what's God looking for? He's looking for a people that know he exists, that believe that he's real, that believe that he is uh, uh, ha and has done for us what he said he's done for us, and that are willing to do whatever God asks us to do without fear of dying. And I'm not just talking about dying physically. I'm talking about dying to what people think about us, dying to public opinion, dying to, you know, uh, all the, the verbal uh, uh, attacks that we experience, right? Revelations 12 and 11, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they did not love their lives even to the point of death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow down and worship. No, we're not doing that. Well, you know, I'm going to throw you in the furnace, Rick Helgero translation of the RHT. You know what we're going to do? And they said, look, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. And I've got a message I may type up someday. It's when does 3 minus 3 equals 4? When God shows up, right? Three Hebrew children eliminate them by throwing in the fire, that's subtraction, but then you look in the fire and there's four. I like kingdom math. I like the way that works, right? When does five loaves and two fishes equal enough food to feed a multitude? When you add God into the equation, right? And I don't know if you know this, but God lives inside of you. If that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies if that spirit dwells in you. Does the spirit of God dwell in you? I think so. Well, maybe that's the problem. We got to move from thinking so to I know so. Who lives inside of you? Jehovah Rapha, the Lord your healer. Why? Because he, he's God and he lives inside of you. Who lives inside of you? Jehovah Shalom, the Lord your peace. I want to tell you something. I know what we go through. I know what's in this world. I go through the same battles that you do. I go through struggles with anxiety and fear, just like everybody else. But I don't accept it. I battle it. I'm not saying it's not real. I just, I just, how, I just learn how to fight, and I have to learn how to fight. And there haven't been always times that I've done so well. But here in the, and I still get just as uh, sometimes uh, just as much uh, attacks as I did before. Uh, and, and the enemy always wants to tell me, I got you now. And what I, I have to just fight with the word of God. No, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace lives inside of me. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a power and love and of a sound mind. I rebuke you, you lying devil. I recognize that it's the devil. Well, you're a pastor. Duh, that's why I'm being attacked by a devil. But it's really not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a Christian. Well, why is the devil attacking me? Because you're a Christian. And God lives inside of you. And it's really not you that he hates. It's that you're created in the image and the likeness of God. And he hates you because God loves you. I got off a little bit. Let's see if I can get back. Let's look at the adversary's heart. There's a parallel passage familiar to many that actually uses the name Lucifer. Prophecy in Scripture reveals not just the outward acts, but also the inner motivation, the essential inner facts. In Isaiah, we see that motivation that caused Lucifer to rebel, and it comes down to one word, pride. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. 
how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now, before we go into this, let me just clarify that. I don't know if I was very clear about it. I don't fight in my strength. I fight in his strength. I don't fight with my word. I fight according to his word, right? So I'm not, I'm not, I forgot what the phrase is, all that in a, you know, I forgot how that goes, but, you know, my, my wife used to say, you think your hot's not on a silver platter, but you're really just a cold booger on a paper plate. I said, <laughs> I said how do you know me so well? <laughs> I ain't all that, right? But the Lord's trying to show me who he is that lives inside of me. And I'm just trying to encourage you that just like me, you may have to fight. No, you will have to fight. But you don't have to lose. Just because you've lost a round doesn't mean you've lost the battle. A bad moment doesn't make for a bad life. A bad day doesn't make for a bad life. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. And the promise of God is... He will flee. Well, I've been resisting. He hadn't fled, fled yet, so keep resisting. Is God's word true? Let God be true and every man a liar. Right? All the, word, uh, all the promises of God are yes, to which we say amen. The word of God is forever settled in the heavens. There is no question in the heavenly realm. Whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. It's a, why am I not being effective? Maybe we're trying to fight in our own strength. But the Bible says, not by might, it's not talking about God's might, it's talking about our might, not by our power, but by thy spirit, says the Lord. The word of God is living, powerful, and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not me, it's the word of God. So what do we have to learn how to do? We, that's why we do the declaration. We have to learn how to get the word of God in our mouth and in our hearts. But you can't do that if it's not in your head. It's got to go from your head to your heart and then out your mouth. And it can't be just rote. It has to be something that you actually come to a place where you believe it. Am I making sense to you? So anyway, getting back to our passage, it's incredible that God knew what Lucifer was saying in his heart all the time, yet he still let him get away with it. We may think we're getting away with something, but God knows what we're doing. Listen, if you go back to the garden, you can read it a couple of different ways. You can say, when God was looking for Adam, that God didn't know where Adam was. And God didn't know what was happening. No, he knew what Adam did, and he knew where Adam was. So why did he say, Adam, where are you? He was trying to get Adam to recognize that he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He wasn't in right relationship with God. But see, God knew that, but sometimes we need to become aware of that. And the Bible says when we are, boy, I'm really getting off on tangent. The Bible says when we are weak, we are strong. Sometimes when you're in the middle of the battle, and I've been there, I have to say, God, I know what I'm supposed to do, 
and I know you've given me authority, but I'm really struggling right now. Can you help me? Can you help me? I believe, but please help my unbelief. So don't get me wrong. It's not all about being all that and a bottle of chi- and a bag of chips. It's not that. It's ultimately about calling on the Lord, trusting in Him, and letting Him be your strength. But at some point, we do need to grow up, right? Now, we can be grown in some battles, and we can be immature in other battles because we're not the same in every battle. We don't have the same strengths. We don't have the same. uh, So, you know, we just have to trust the Lord in the middle of it. Okay, let me get back. So we may think we're getting away with something, but God knows what we're doing. Uh, Even if God let us get away with it for months or even years, one day we'll discover that God knew all about it. Two words occur five times in the passage above. They are the motivating words of action, I will. And by the way, the reason I say this is because who is revealing to us what happened in the heavens? God. How how do we know this is what Lucifer was doing? Because God knows everything. Right? So anyway, getting back. The root problem of the universe is the will of the creature in opposition to the will of the creator. It's the root problem. It was a root problem with Lucifer, and it's really the big battle with us. And believe it or not, it's the battle that happens within us as Christians as well. Who's God? We say, well, I believe God is God, but how do you live? Do you live as God is God? Or do you acknowledge God, but you don't necessarily obey God? Or you obey God in some areas but you don't obey God in all areas. Well, I'm okay, but who determines that you're okay? You see, that's really the whole question. Who's sitting on the throne of your life? I'm good, but you're making that declaration, not God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It's really the whole battle. Who's in charge? Who's the creator? Well, anyway, in this passage, the enemy is saying, Lucifer is saying, I will ascend into heaven. Isaiah 14, 13. I, you're going to see a a, a common thread here, will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like or equal to the most high. The last point is the climax of all motivation toward rebellion, which is to be like God. And the interesting thing was, we were created already like God. We were created in the image and the likeness of God. Instead of being content, we wanted to strive for more. The Hebrew language has five main verb forms, one of which is used to indicate an act that is done repetitively or with special intention. This is the form that is used in this passage. It is not, I will be, but I will make myself. In other words, the enemy said, it is my aim or my purpose, my ongoing intention and endeavor to make myself equal to the Most High. And what was the result? The Bible says God opposes the proud. And what happened with Lucifer? He was cast out of heaven. And where did he end up? On this planet. 
And then amazing, God said, all right, I'll put them on this planet, but now I'm going to create a being in the image and the likeness of me that will put him in his place. Only we succumb to his lies and his temptation instead of bowing to the will of God and letting God use us to. Because what does it say? Be, uh, what do he tell Adam? Cultivate the garden and keep it. When he said cultivate, what he was saying, work it, extend it, and keep it. That means keep watch over the garden. Don't let the adversary in. But they did. Because he doesn't come in with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. How does he come in? As an angel of light. So how do we recognize him? The Spirit of God inside of you will let you know, right? So, uh, I think it's the last point, the adversary's intent. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. The Bible says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What are we supposed to do? Resist him. As we know, at the cross of Calvary, Jesus conquered the devil and his minions. He overcame death, hell, and the grave, and now sits at the right hand of God and has placed all things underneath his feet. Actually, it says, underneath our feet because we are the body of Christ Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him that happened at the cross of Calvary Luke 10 and 19 behold I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and in case you think that's really serpents and scorpions no they're types and metaphors of the enemy and over all the power of the enemy not some of the power of the enemy, not most of the power of the enemy, but all the power of the enemy. You know why Jesus, well, let me, by, uh, uh, and nothing shall harm you. You know why Jesus got so upset with the disciples when he came off the mountain in uh, Matthew 17, Mount of Transfiguration, took Peter, Paul, James, and John, the Fab Four, no. um, the Beatles, Took him up the mountain. I think there was only three of them. And, uh, and the Bible says he transformed before them, right? And they were, like, amazed. And while he was up there on the mountain with them, the rest of the disciples were down uh, uh, around the fireside or wherever you want to call it, down the mountain. But they were, uh, uh, a father brought his child and wanted him to cast, wanted hit the disciples to cast the demons out. Now, Jesus had already given them authority to cast out demons. And they had already cast out demons very successfully. But when they tried to cast this one out, it was of a different type. And that's what Jesus tells us in another. It says, this is, a, this is another kind. This is a different kind, right? This one cometh out, but by, depends on the translation used. Some say prayer and fasting. Some say prayer, right? But he wasn't saying it doesn't come out. He says it comes out. But you're going to have to be a little more persistent, right? But the problem was the disciples had concluded they could not. When Jesus had said they could. And sometimes that's what happens to us. God's word says one thing, but our circumstances say another thing, and we choose to let 
the circumstances define what we can and cannot do and shape our theology instead of the Bible and what God says we can and cannot do. If you speak to this mountain, Jesus said, it will move. Now, the context in that is you have to persist. You got to keep going. You, you can't back down because mountains don't want to move. But Jesus said they will move. We're not talking about literal mountains. We're talking about problems, obstacles, whatever the case may be. Well, how are they going to move? By standing on the word of God. The same way that the Red Sea moved when Moses stood before the people and raised his staff. How long did he stand there with his staff raised? I would tend to think he was there until the water completely parted. And how long do we have to hold up the word of God in the middle of our circumstances until what God says is going to happen, happens? You're, it, listen, the power is not in you. It wasn't in Moses' staff. It wasn't in Moses. It was in God and his word. But we do have a part to play. Sometimes we think, man, i got to really hold my staff. I really have to work hard to get this. No. But we do have to be obedient. We do have to continue to hold up the staff. We do have to continue to believe and trust God. Romans 16 and 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. We are the body of Christ. He is the head. We are the body. When he says he's going to crush him underneath our feet, he's talking literally our feet. He's not supposed to be above us. We're supposed to, in some ways, bring him down in humiliation the way Jesus did at the cross of Calvary. I'm not talking about to be proud. You don't want to get into pride. But I'm talking about what God's purpose is and what God plans is not that we lose to the enemy, but that we enforce his victory over the enemy. God rules. We have authority and power, but the enemy is still running loose in the world. We have a part to play in this. As you can see, the enemy, although defeated, still has the ability to traffic in this world. He still aims to attack God's rule and reign by tempting, preventing, and or tearing down any relationship between the creature and the creator. I, I read this and I really liked it. It says, if you have at any time in your life or know of somebody that was in a relationship with someone and for some reason, let's say it was a hurtful breakup or difficult situation and the person one of the people that was loved decided to leave um, while we may, while the other person may not be able to really hurt that person it's not uncommon if they carry a picture of that person to destroy the picture right shred it pull it out shred it some more in some ways in the same way although the devil has been defeated by God if he can't do anything to God, and he can't, he seeks to destroy those whom he created in the image and the likeness of God. We are the picture of God, the image of God. And if he can't hurt God, he wants to take out his anger and his frustrations on us. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's still trying to persuade us to sin. And the chief of those sins is pride. 
He can't make us or force us, as in the garden, his chief tactic is temptation. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. If he can tempt us to move into the sin of pride, he knows that we will place ourselves in opposition to God. He's not doing anything to us. We're coming out from under the shadow of his wings. In essence, we partner with the other side. 1 Peter 5 and 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but of case, but he gives grace to the humble. There's another scripture that says, humble yourselves in the sight of God. So who humbles you? I, the Bible says we can humble ourselves. I don't know about you, but I'd rather humble myself than be humbled. How does that work? Recognize when you're leaning in the wrong way. And I do. I make mistakes. Do you make mistakes? Y'all are nodding because you Oh, we were nodding because when you said you make mistakes. No, okay. We were agreeing with you. Thank you. Because I agree with you too. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to say you're sorry. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Because God opposes the proud. Now, there are times... When it's hard. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it. And then you can't sleep. What does the Bible say? Do not go to bed angry. Right? Let not the sun go down on your wrath. And you're like, I don't care. I'm not doing it. And then the older I get, I mean, I didn't do it when I was younger. I just, I did it. And I paid for it. Paid for it. Paid a price for it. In what way? Couldn't sleep. You know, there was just like uh, tension. And yeah, we're talking about, I'm just being in the family, whatever the case may be, you know, husband and wife. You know how that goes. Y'all don't have that problem. Well, anyway, sometimes I go to bed and I said, look, am I really going to do this again? And part of me is thinking, well, if she comes and says, I'm sorry, then I'll say I'm sorry. I don't know what she's thinking. That's not my prerogative. My prerogative is to choose to do something that I could do. And so whether she agrees, whether she, and I'm not saying, this, I'm not being, it's not a literal example. I'm just talking about whether my, if my wife agreed with me or not, if I, I have to come out and say, I'm sorry. And of course, it's sometimes it's like, well, you don't really mean it. That has nothing to do with it. I know, in my mind, I'm sorry. Well, you're not sorry because of me. You're sorry because you can't sleep. It don't matter why I'm sorry. She's never said that, by the way. I'm just using an example. No, seriously, she never said that. I'm just giving examples. All I'm saying is that I still have to humble myself. I don't have to prove myself, but I've got to humble myself. I'm sorry. Right? Love covers a multitude of sins. 
they will know we're Christians by our love for one another. Not for our lack of contention. There's always going to be contention in the body. There's always going to be disagreements in the body. I mean, I have a household, and, you know, I, I, my kids don't always agree with me. My wife doesn't always agree with me. Half the time, I don't agree with myself. But it doesn't matter. That happens. What do you got to learn how to do? You got to learn how to be a peacemaker. And a peacemaker sometimes is not about making the other person uh, rendid. How do you say that in English? Uh, submit. It's about you submitting. You can't control the other person. You can control you. Right? Humble yourselves in the sight of God. He will lift you. So we began this teaching by posing a question. If God created everything good, how then do we live in such a world as the one we're in that from every aspect appears not to be so good? Did God do that? I hope we've come to see that the sower of iniquity is an adversary. While defeated at the cross, he continues to create enmity between the creator and the creation, and one of the chief ways he does so is through the sin of pride. What I also hope we've learned is that in being aware of him and his tactics, we can more readily partner with God to resist him. How do we do that? Again, James 4 and 7. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. And one of the chief ways it says right before this is humble yourselves. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I can, uh, what did Paul say? Um, Jesus, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. How do I access grace? By humbling myself. And it's actually God's grace that will enable us to walk in victory over the enemy. Mm -hmm.